is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, or In Me for short. My guest in this episode is a classmate from college who was born here in the United States, yet has a profound appreciation for and connection to his Armenian heritage. He joined me to talk about the ways in which he has sought to learn more about his roots and the importance of these different opportunities and spaces throughout his life. Yo, I'm here with a man who needs no introduction, but will get one anyway. Thank God for social media and a platform like Zoom to allow me to reconnect with Rafi Dersimonian. Some say that I was popular in college, but this dude was the dawn. My man had a guitar with him virtually everywhere he went and never seemed phased by anything. I have a vague memory of him even wearing flip-flops all the time, even on cold days. And if there was a beautiful woman walking around on our floor, she was usually headed towards his room. <laughs> He's like, you know it, you know it. Wow. Well, <laughs> oh, I mean, that oh, would... <laughs> my introduction isn't quite done. <laughs> In all seriousness, I remember Rafi as a genuine character who was always smiling. And I'm not the least bit surprised that he's doing meaningful work in the real world. Rafi, how's it going? Hadley, it's going great. I have to say that is quite uh, possibly the best introduction I've ever been given. And I'm not sure uh, how accurate it is. However, it means a lot that that you remember that, that era. You know, that was a special time in our lives. Of course it was, man. 18 to 22, carefree. Um, yeah, I wish I could rewind and go back there. Of course. <laughs> now, listen, man, if I got a bunch of cats from Clark after this call and say, yo, I was talking to Rafi, it's going to be excitement from everybody. What, Rafi? Yo, that was the dude. I don't think anybody would say a bad word about you. I'm serious. <laughs> well, I, I could say the same about you, mate. And, uh, you know, I got to say, it's been awesome to see you evolve your career. I remember you used to have uh, a stump at our weekly publication, The Scarlet, where you were writing about similar issues that you're podcasting about in Identity and Me. And to see your career flourish at Phillips Exeter, I got to say, makes me really, really happy for you, brother. So, so, so good to be here connecting with you tonight. Thank you very much. By the way, y'all, I didn't ask him to say any of that about what I did at uh, at Clark, the writing for the school newspaper. Um, I appreciate you mentioning that. I won't edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> In the real world, I go by my full name, but on the podcast, my stage name is Stena. Stena. Yeah. So if you could remember that, that's my stage name. And it's really my middle name. There's a story behind it. And for anybody who's interested in that story, you're going to have to listen to every episode in the podcast because it's embedded in there somewhere. Stena, duly noted, mate. And Rafi, um, you still look the same, man. Like, you have not changed at all. Like, what fountain are you drinking from? <laughs> uh, I feel much I feel much different, you know. Time, uh, it's marching on. You know, it's turned 40, and I'm actually going to be a first-time father in T-minus five Woo! weeks. So uh, talk to me in, in a few months, and I'm sure I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely transform a little bit more by then. Uh, you won't look as spry, you're thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely bigger bags under the eyes, that's for sure. So how did it feel when you turned 40, man? You know, it felt, I had built it up so much, and then it happened. 
And then I kind of, it, I was like, all right, here I am. It's 40, you know? Um, I think I made it into be a much bigger deal than it was. And I think the older I get, the more it becomes clear to me that age is definitely a frame of mind. And I hope that I can always embody some degree of youthfulness. Uh, you know, music is one elixir, I would say, to to stay young and to some extent playing in general, you know, it's and whatever you're doing, sports, uh, whether you're watching them, playing them, it's about it's about you know one good way to stay young. Yeah, um, it sounds to me like you're kind of saying age is nothing but a number. And the more and more I listen to you, I'm just like, oh, yeah, this dude is sounding like he's easing into a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I will say, you know, as you get older, the the whole uh, equation shifts a lot and, you know, priorities. I'm not even a dad yet and I can feel it starting to uh, unfold. But, you know, with that said, it's it's all good. And I'm so excited to have my health and to be doing work that I love to be doing and surrounded by a, a community that I'm meaningfully connected with. So just feel so much gratitude in so many ways. Yeah. Um, in terms of gratitude to still be alive and, and and to have good health, I'm assuming you have good health by looking at you. Yes, you're nodding. And um, unfortunately, there are classmates of ours who are no longer living. So yeah. um, I totally don't take being able to celebrate my 40th birthday for granted. Rafi, what are you up to these days? So. I'm a principal of Dersimonian LLC, which is a boutique consultancy. Um, I'm specializing in uh, communications consulting for academic institutions. So a few of the clients that I'm working with uh, include Portland Public School System, Maine Media Workshops in College, uh, done some work with Harvard Business School, with uh, currently working with Worcester State University, still holding down some Worcester roots. Um, so helping institutions to identify their message, what delineates, distinguishes them from other institutions, and helping them find creative ways to tell their story, whether it be through public relations or digital media. Uh, you know, it's it's been a really interesting evolution of different communication channels since we were students at Clark. And, uh, you know, it's been really interesting to observe how this field has evolved over the last couple of decades. I can't believe it's been a couple of decades. It just yeah. blows my mind to even say that out loud. Yeah. Two uh, more yeah. years till we're celebrating 20 years graduated from college, man. That's, that's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, living in Portland, Maine, and, you know, I grew up in Waterville, so it's great to be in my home state and just, uh, yeah, surrounded by some amazing creative and technical colleagues. I work with some different video partners with a digital design firm that's actually headquartered in Worcester, Area Design. Next time you drive by Park Avenue uh, across from Wendy's, you might see the, the new Area Design building there. Okay. So... So yeah, it's uh, it's it's great doing what I love to do and learning a ton along the way. How'd you get into this work and for how long have you been doing it? So I've actually done marketing consulting since I was a student at Clark. Um, in terms of how I got into it, uh, it's kind of an interesting story. It actually comes down to a mentor that I had at Clark University who was the former 
VP of advancement. His name was Tom Dolan. Um, for any Clarkies out there, you might remember Tom Dolan, tall Irish guy. Uh, the Dolan Fieldhouse is named in his honor. Yeah, I was going to say he's a trustee. Check you out networking with the trustees. Keep it going, okay? <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is actually kind of an interesting segue, Stena, because while I was a student at Clark, Tom Dolan was raising $3 million to endow the first ever chair of Armenian genocide studies. And as the co-founder of the Armenian Students Association, he would take me to some different fundraising events. And I got to learn about the world of fundraising and advancement in higher education in particular. And that relationship, first of all, is testimony to what makes Clark such a special place. The fact that you can develop friendships with vice presidents and, and, uh, and trustees. And, you know, we kept in touch. I was consulting at the time and he put an opportunity on my radar that took me back to Worcester where I served as head of alumni affairs in the annual fund at a small liberal arts school in Worcester, Becker College. Yeah, yeah. Side note, rest in peace, Becker. Yeah, they seriously. had their last day probably heard about that right they should have given you a raise and kept you on to keep raising money for them brother <laughs> yeah. yeah you know that was such a, a difficult to observe uh even with as many years my rear view as that position was um the good news is that i got some amazing experience in uh building relationships with all different constituents alumni uh trustees students faculty and staff and also, I should mention, that's where I met my wife. Uh, she was a Becker alum and actually on the advancement team, um, which sounds way more scandalous than it really was. But, um, Hold yeah, on, was so, she older than you? Was she older than you? No, <laughs> she, she was younger, but we, we were on the same team for a while. Um, but we uh, you know, kept it all above board. And then I got promoted to director of marketing communications. Yeah. And we started dating almost immediately after that. So... <laughs> cool. And congratulations yeah. on still being together. Ah, thank you. Thank you, man. It's I consider myself a very lucky guy. Sounds like it. Um, now, you mentioned the Armenian Student Association, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in the podcast. And before we get into um, your founding of that club and the work you did as a student, I'm going to ask you the question that I asked my guests on the podcast before we get into the meat of the episode, which is how do you identify? So I am half French, half Armenian. However, I often lead with my Armenian heritage. Interestingly enough, I speak way better French than I speak Armenian. Um, but I think, and this is maybe part of how we all deal with our cultural identities, but because of uh, the smallness and uniqueness of Armenia as a country, I personally always felt like it was more for lack of a better word, there was something more compelling about it. And also given the uh, history of the Armenian people, and for those of you who know, they suffered immense persecution and still do to this day, uh, suffered a genocide at the hands of the Turks. So almost this uh, feeling of, I don't know what the right word is. I don't want to say duty, but a, a propensity towards wanting to preserve it. And I always felt a lot of pride about my Armenian heritage. Yeah. So Armenian French, 5% Mi'kmaq Indian yeah. uh, on the French side. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, I am, I'm American, you know, I'm, I grew up in America. I 
as, as lucky as I am to have some bicultural influence in my life, I'm a, you know, straight up white boy, Armenian French dude. <laughs> so somebody looking at you may automatically assume that you're just a white dude and you're a white dude from uh, Waterville, Maine. Does it bother you at all that, you know, somebody who doesn't know you just sees you by, I guess, what they perceive to be your racial identity? You know, I, it doesn't bother me at all. I would say that the cultural influences that I was able to experience growing up is part of what makes, I would say, sets me apart from so many of my peers, especially growing up in a really homogenous community like Waterville and, you know, living in, in Maine. I think it's also been a great way for me to I don't, I don't even know what the right, the right way to express this, Stena, but it's informed my own appreciation uh, and attractiveness to other cultures yeah. uh, because of, you know, I, I, I always appreciate it when people express interest in my culture. I know how much that means to me. So I like to learn about other people's cultures. So I would say that if anything, it's been what I would consider to be um, a gift and an advantage in my own life. I don't, I don't know if that if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah. Before we this conversation started, you mentioned that um, there was an Armenian church in Worcester, and there was a yeah. migration there uh, at some point. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And was that your draw to Clark? So I think part of what drew me to Clark definitely was. Part of Clark's DNA is all about, uh, you know, the Peapod. It, it was their their big marketing campaign about being different, about being unique. I just remember I looked at a bunch of schools. I had two older sisters that looked at schools. The moment I set foot on Clark's campus, there was this connection, and I just felt like I kind of I was with my people. Um, you know, I was I would say it was more serendipity that once I got there, I learned that there was a strong Armenian community. Um, like you mentioned, the oldest Armenian church in the country uh, founded in the late 1800s. So before the genocide, before there was a huge migration of the uh, diaspora and Armenians that ended up in Worcester. And then I'll never forget well, when I found out that I could take an Armenian genocide studies class. Yeah. And that I was, I just felt like, all right, this is, you know, this is meant to be. Um, and it was actually uh, a professor, Hank Terrio, who's currently uh, the dean of academics at Worcester State University. Yeah. Um, and he's a genocide scholar. Um, he encouraged me to found the Armenian Students Association. Um, he saw a need for it. And knowing what I know now about institutional advancement, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some synergy between that recommendation to start the Armenian Club and the fundraising initiative that was afoot to endow this chair. The class that you referenced that you took, what was the name of it? Yeah, it was Armenian Genocide Studies. I don't remember the exact name of the course, but it was basically kind of a, a historical analysis of the Armenian Genocide brought into context of a bunch of different scholars we brought this guy uh, to campus, Hilmar Kaiser, who was a, a German scholar who focused on the relationship between the Armenian genocide and the Jewish Holocaust, because there's a lot of parallels. Mm. And and as you as you know, um, 
I think Hillel, uh, which is like the Jewish Students Association, was the largest club at Clark. Yeah, it was. So yeah. There was a strong, strong um, Hillel community there as well. You know, it's, there's like a few professors that make a huge impact in your life. And I would say Hank Terrio is definitely one of them. I'm not sure if, if, if you're aware of this, Stena, but this past April 24th, which is the National Day of Remembrance, yeah. um, President Biden was the first U.S. president to officially use the language of genocide, which has certain implications behind uh, that terminology. So it's still something that is uh, a big sore point. Oftentimes, any sort of Armenian conversation gets eclipsed by the genocide. And it's I've always thought of that as a, a shame. Um, so part of my commitment is trying to keep my eyes on the road ahead and focus on all the amazing things that need to be celebrated and preserved within the Armenian culture. And there's a lot of it. Uh, the Armenian culture is just so rich with vibrant art and music and cuisine yeah. and history. So it's, it's, you know, it's amazing the impact that a genocide can have on a group of people. I had heard about the frustration that many in the Armenian community and outside of the community had about the genocide not being recognized and then Joe Biden recognizing it on April 24th, as you mentioned, was a, a big deal. Why was it important to you for Joe Biden to recognize it as a genocide? And why was the issue so politicized? I'll start with the first part. Why it was so important to me? Because it provides some sort of validation. You know, you can imagine uh, a people enduring such unspeakable suffering and loss uh, and then not to have it recognized formally. Uh, it is recognized. It's very well known by anyone who's paying attention to history and politics. Um, you know, there's many countries around the world have formally recognized it. But America has been very slow to the game, primarily because of our complicated geopolitical relationship with Turkey to this day. Um, and more specifically, there's a, uh, a military base that the U.S. uses in Turkey that is widely regarded as kind of a, a lily pad to the Middle East, where we have so many um, financial, political um, uh interests. So it comes down to, unfortunately, you know, money. The country of Armenia, historically, for as old as it is, it's, it's just had a tough go. Thank you for the lesson, man. Some of this is new information to me, and I, I appreciate you sharing. And I'm assuming that you got to do a lot of this exploring and learning in the class that you referenced earlier and this club that you started as a freshman at Clark. You mentioned the Armenian Student Association earlier in the episode, and I said that I would pivot back to that. So can you talk a little bit about why you started the club and what you learned? You know, in terms of what compelled me to start it, I think uh, first and foremost, a deep pride and connectivity with my Armenian roots. Um, I mentioned that faculty member, uh, Professor Hank Terrio, who quite literally uh, suggested that that we start this club. And I think part of it was we brought this one speaker. It was a great success. And, you know, I have to credit his encouragement there. Um, you know, I grew up in a, a non-Armenian community, but every, uh, every summer, my siblings and I would go to St. Barton Armenian camp, which was for Armenian Americans. And it was 
my favorite two weeks out of the year. I would look forward to these two weeks so much. And it was a place just to um, immerse myself with other Armenian Americans and learn about the Armenian language, Ar- Armenian arts and crafts, dance, music, food. Um, and I got to say to my mom's credit, even though she wasn't Armenian, she fell in love with the Armenian culture and learned to speak a, a lot of the language, named us all Armenian names. And I think to some extent, I attribute my affinity to my Armenian culture to my mom as well. It, it sounds ironic, right? Uh, yeah. Because she's French, but you know, it's part of the equation for sure. Talk to me about the functionality of the Armenian Student Association. And when I say functionality, Talk to me about what the group did when they brought students together throughout the year. One thing that I found was that a key ingredient to getting students to show up to events was food. Food. (laughs) (laughs) I completed that sentence. I knew where you were going. They don't come for the Uh, guest lecturers alone. No. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, You might remember there was a restaurant in Park Ave called Shiraz which uh, had the Armenian flag and, um, you know, they delicious Armenian cuisine. And I, I remember partnering with the owners of Shiraz in, uh, to do events there for them to cater events. I, I think I've picked up, you know, several trays of baklava from them. Um, so what, what I found was that, you know, food was a, a good common denominator to bring everyone together. Um, but we also would, uh, we'd screen films. Um, I remember we filmed Adam Goyan's Arara uh, at Jefferson 320. Um, we, we brought guest lecturers. We brought Armenian uh, artists to campus. I remember we brought uh, this dance troupe it's called Sayat Nova. Um, and, you know, I can't take credit for all of this. There was a lot of... Uh, encouragement and support from faculty, administration, um, from Armenian students on campus. Uh, I'll, I'll share this with you quickly, but, you know, this was pre-Facebook. So I remember when we were founding the Armenian Student Association, the way that we put together our initial list was literally going through the phone book, the Clark phone book, yeah. and yeah. highlighting all of the names that ended in IAN. Fortunately, there was a strong community of people that also felt that need to connect on some level and as surface level as it may be in some ways, even just having that outlet, I would say created such a meaningful dynamic in my Clark education. Hold on now. So did y'all ever think to reach out to the student affairs office or admissions to um, ask for the names of students who identified as Armenian. You could have saved yourself a lot of time, man. Like computers were a thing back in the day. They could have said, oh yeah, sure. Let's run a list and email it to you. Now y'all wanted to do the phone book IAN exercise. You know, that's a good idea, Stena. I wish we would have had this discussion like, you know, you know 14 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you found um, Armenian students this way and... Uh, Prior to this call, I didn't realize IAN was an indicator of one's Armenian heritage. Okay, cool. Good to know. It means means son of. So it's like a suffix that means son of, which is kind of cool. Um, In in my last name, the der 
is a prefix given to Armenian families that have clergy in their lineage. So in Armenia, a priest is a, a dead hide. So it's kind of a, an interesting um, add-on over time. So my great-great-grandfather was an Armenian priest. And what did it mean to you to be in community with other Armenian students, one? And two, was it an affinity group or was it a cultural club? For my audience, an affinity group is a group that um, invites people of a shared background together, and it's for that particular group only. A cultural club allows students or people from other groups to uh, attend meetings and participate in events. Thank you for listening to part one of our conversation. Be on the lookout for part two of our discussion about affinity groups and cultural clubs and why they're so important to students who are in the minority in a particular community. Identity and me. Identity and me.